We are going to uh, be sharing, uh, speaking a little bit, I'm going to be speaking a little bit this morning in relation again to what I've been working through for weeks, but this is, these are like applications <clears throat> for my uh, recent study on walking in the Spirit. Those of us who have come into right relationship with God have received the Spirit of God within us. God's Spirit is within us as a seal, in essence, uh, a validation of the fact that we have come into relationship with God through our faith in Messiah Yeshua. God's Spirit strengthens us, encourages us, and helps us to live our lives God's way. And uh, this, um, this morning, what I want to focus on the fact focus on is the fact that God, through His Spirit, uh, equips people, as we've talked about, with different spiritual gifts, but really also equips them so that they can fulfill roles and uh, positions of spiritual leadership and service within the community. And uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, it's a big piece of text, but we're just going to skim it. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 2, First Timothy chapter 2, and uh, all the way through chapter 3. So let's take a look at the beginning here. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 2, page 1137. And the first thing I want to talk about is the establishment of authority. <laughs> so we'll start with that. First Timothy chapter 2, please turn with me, page 1137. And we're going to talk about the role of authority in human society. Verses 1 through 4. And again, the notes for this are on the back side of the announcement sheet. It begins, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, first of all, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and respectfulness. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He desires all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Now, I'm not going to be expansive in every one of these points. I just want to make a few points. Uh, the biblical text makes it very clear that we are to respect governing authorities. We live in a lawless society. All right? We live in a very lawless society. We are an anti-authoritarian society. We're an anti-authority society. Everyone wants to be left alone, and they don't want anybody telling them anything. And uh, we're not in an anarchical society yet, but in some ways we've veered into that in, in, in some ways. I consider it to be a bit of a problem. It's not biblical. You can hold your political views and your personal beliefs about different governing authorities that exist, but the bottom line is know that the Bible tells you to pray for them, especially the ones you don't like. You're to respect their roles and positions, even if you don't like the individuals. You have no biblical standing whatsoever to dis-governing authorities. I don't care who they are. Right? For those of us who liked the previous president, that's great. Hopefully we prayed for him and, and upheld him in the role that he had. For those of you who like this current uh, president, I hope you pray for him and uphold him in, in what he does. But if you didn't like the last one or you don't like this one, you have no right biblically to speak negatively about them from the biblical text perspective. You should be praying for them and upholding them in the role they have. You don't have to agree with them and you can express that disagreement. But it's really important that we recognize that this text is written at a time when Nero was emperor and the entire leadership that existed in the Roman Empire was corrupt. Far worse than anything we deal with, we're dealing with now. For Paul to write that back then means that uh, we got nothing to complain about. You can still go out and vote, 
okay? You still have a voice in a democracy. This counts also, I should say, in, in, for believers in, the, in North Korea. How do you think the North Koreans or the Chinese believers apply this? Take, take either one of those. They pray for their governing authorities. They, by, because of persecution, aren't going to say a thing about their governing authorities. But I hope they're praying for them and praying for God to work. So it's important. I'm making this point because as I, this is in the announcement sheet, all authorities are established allowed. And that, I put that like that because sometimes there's these paradoxes in the biblical text. Why would God raise up a completely wicked, horrible person? Into, God either established, allows, okay? Whatever, all right? God does this whether they honor him or not. That's, a, that's just the way you've got to look at the text, all right? All authorities are established, allowed by God, whether they honor God or not. That would include all the horrible people that ever lived, including why in the world would God ever raise up, allow a guy like Adolf Hitler to come to power, okay? The biblical text is clear. God's in control of everything. I raised up Cyrus, my servant, to do what? To take down the Babylonians and bring the Jews back. Was Cyrus a godly guy? No, Second point, all authorities serve to bring order into an otherwise chaotic world. Some of them cause a lot of disorder too, okay? But that's basically what the text is talking about. There's a certain reality that from God's perspective, things are to flow a certain way. Therefore, certain leaders he raises up and allows. Brings order, though, generally into a chaotic world. You imagine what happened if there was no governing authorities in our society? We would all eat one up one another up. It would be total chaos and anarchy. Uh, I remember reading a study once. They, somebody did some research. They dug up a graveyard somewhere in Europe from like the Middle Ages, and they saw that, that so many people, a significant chunk, chunk of people died violent deaths. Why? Because it was anarchy. We, you know, it's, we're relatively safe today. I mean, you know, we live in an amazing time. You know, we're, there are no pogroms, not really. Not like, you know, Europe 100 years ago or so. I mean, we're, there is a law and order that we should be very grateful for in our society. Let's pray for our governing authorities. Thank God for it. All authorities serve God's purposes and plans, whether they understand it or not. That's also important. Whether you like this president or you like that president or you didn't like either or whatever it is, the point is, is that all of these, all of these individuals and wherever they're at, including Xi and China, Okay, not tea in China, chi in China. All of them are there to move God's plans forward. So let's pray. Let's pray that God's will be done. Let's pray for those especially that are over us, that they would make good choices like we do here on, on, uh, on Shabbat, and, and hopefully you do at home too, all right? But the point I want to make, according to this text, God establishes authorities. That's really important because of what the rest of the passage is talking about. Take a look at verses 8 through 15. Oh, before we do that, I wanted to read something. You know, a long time ago, I wanted to become an Air Force pilot. Many years ago, I served in the Civil Air Patrol in California as a kid, you know, and I wanted to be in the Air Force, and actually, I had opportunities, and God did other things. I became a believer. <laughs> but you know, to become an Air Force pilot is not easy. First thing you have to do is join the Air Force. But beyond that, this is a two-sheet. This is from Indeed, folks. So I'm looking at something official here. Just posted on Indeed, April 28th of 2021. They're looking for pilots in the United States Air Force. But all kinds of qualifications, bachelor degrees, attend officer training school. But here, there's two, 
two sets of requirements in order to, to uh, be an Air Force pilot. There are physical requirements, and then there are technical or soft skill requirements. All right, so physical requirements, 18 to 30 years of age. There is a waiver for special people up to 35. But 18 to 30 years of age, at least 5 feet 4 inches, but no more than 6 feet 5 inches, mostly must be related to the cockpit, I would imagine. Seated height between 34 and 40 inches tall, at least 20-40 vision in both eyes or near vision, and 20-20 distant for distant vision must be corrected to 20-20. In other words, you can't have eye issues to be an Air Force pilot. You can't wear contact lenses when you're going, you know, 1,000 miles an hour. So you've got to have good vision. Must not be colorblind. Have had laser eye surgery or other poor depth perception. Must have perfect hearing. That would knock out a few of you. Must withstand several G's of pressure. No hay or no history of hay fever, asthma, or allergies after age 12 in a healthy weight. You, these are physical requirements. You can't get around those. You either have them or you don't. I couldn't, I couldn't go because I'm, I, am, I, I mean, I have bad eyesight. Couldn't be a pilot. Important skills, though. Now, these are things that you're not born with. These are things you can acquire, all right? Be able to operate complex equipment. You have to be able to know how to monitor the operation of complex Flying around in a jet, you know, that, that really shouldn't be flying. It just happens to be able to fly. Be an active listener. Looking at my son. Active listener. Critical thinker. Be able to uh, solve complex problems. You have to have reading comprehension, good judgment and decision making. Know how to manage your time. Be, have a certain level of coordination. Math, reading, quality control. You know, some of these can be learned. An active listener, a person who's a bad listener can learn to be an active listener. They can train themselves. But if you happen to have bad vision and be an amazing person with time management, you still cannot be an Air Force pilot. All right? Can't happen. Now, I'm reading that because <clears throat> the rest of this section uh, has to do with either um, requirements that are, that are innate. They just, you have them or you don't. Or they are learned things, things that you have learned, that you have developed, uh, and therefore are able to serve. Um, God has laid out different roles within the community. Some of these uh, people have disagreements about, but I'm stating my perspective and the perspective of the synagogue in regards to these. And so we're going to begin with the role of women, found on, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. It says, so I desire all men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without anger and argument. Likewise, women are to adorn themselves in appropriate clothing with modesty and sound judgment, not in seductive hairstyles and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but what is suitable for women claiming godliness through good deeds. Let a woman receive training in a quiet demeanor with complete respect for order. But I do not allow a woman to train or dictate to a man, but to be in a quiet demeanor. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Also, Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, she fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she shall be sustained through childbearing if they continue in faithfulness and love and holiness with sound judgment. So here we have a section. Again, this has to do with congregational order. And here we have a section where it talks about community prayer. So basically a communal worship service. That's kind of the idea behind it. And, of course, he begins by talking to the men in terms of making sure that when you're worshiping, have proper motivation and proper intent 
You know, he talks about uh, hands held up. I mean, I don't know. You can lift your hands. You can not lift your hands. I'm, that's not the point. I think the idea there is your connection with God is, is intentional and pure. That's the idea. Without anger and argument, meaning make sure you're not currently ready to kill the guy you know, three pews up from you, you know, or you're angry with somebody or uh, whatever, you know. Uh, but there it's, it's talking about being in a position of readiness for, for prayer, all right? That's, that's really what it's trying to get at in terms of your internals, your internals. And then it goes on and talks about women. Now, uh, we're going to use this as an opportunity to point out some points regarding women in, in, uh, in roles here in the synagogue. It talks about, first, the importance of women to uh, adorn themselves. Uh, well, basically, I'm going to just read it. From the list, God calls women within the congregation to major on the internals, not the externals. So if we're talking here in terms of congregational meetings, the idea is not to look bad. That's not the point. The point is to make sure that when you come in, that there's not so much a focus on the outside that you're forgetting about the inside. Uh, the, some, of the verge, uh, uh, some of the words that are used also uh, seem to uh, emphasize avoiding anything suggested or immodest always happy to point out in a completely immodest world that it's important to cover up only if nothing else because you stand out in a good way before others. Hard to walk around in the middle of summer if you have issues with lust because, you know, it, the world people have just values now which, which value letting it all hang out. Uh, that's not a biblical value. It's not, you know. I think that modesty can vary. Our objective was always, you know, with Rachel, I mean, I, you know, never so much an issue with the guys, although I suppose that is an issue as well today. But, you know, I, you had to always wear a sleeve. Why? Because the sleeve always had to add a little bit of cloth, always added a little bit of cloth to the clothing. Uh, I think that uh, it's, a t it's not a bad idea to consider how we dress so that we are not drawing inappropriate attention to ourselves. All right? Just a plug. But within the congregation, uh, he is probably dealing with the fact that in some communities, people like to dress up to draw attention to themselves within the congregation in a way that is just not appropriate. It doesn't build worship and encourage worship. It's more about drawing people's attention to themselves. When you come to worship within the congregation, this is good for women or men, but since it's about women and the thing, we'll talk about women. Remember, it's not about you coming in and being noticed by everybody because of how beautiful you look. You're coming in to worship God. You're dressing up because you're presenting yourself before God. All of that is internals, and you're thinking about that internal stuff as you're putting on your clothes and you're coming to services. It's not about dressing in such a way that you're drawing attention from other people to yourself so much as you're dressing really because you're coming to worship the Lord your God. Our tradition has been for years for guys to dress up. Why? There's an intentionality for guys to dress up in our society today, all right? And especially our Messianic Jewish movement, it seems so, so off the wall compared to the normal Jewish community. I mean, in my neighborhood, when people are walking to synagogue in the middle of summer, they're still dressing up. Why? It's a Jewish value. We're going to worship the Lord our God. We are going to dress appropriately. That's the idea. And so it should be for us. We're here to worship the Lord our God. And so we dress appropriately. So how that is is going to vary. Some of you are much 
more creative in how you dress. I'm not criticizing looking good. It's just make sure that you understand that you're coming for the purpose of worshiping the Lord our God, not showing everybody how great you look, all right? The other point that he makes in the text is God calls women within the congregation to serve under the authority of the men. This is one where people like to argue all the time. All I want to say here in regards to that is that Paul is making a point here before he goes into a section on who are Shechinim and Shamashim about the essential role that women have to serve under the spiritual authority of men within the community. That's what he's trying to say here. When you look at this and you look at the original language and you look at the, the story behind the whole thing, the bottom line is women are called within the congregation to serve under the authority of the men and to do it in a way where they learn and serve in a quiet demeanor. That phrase, quiet, quieter demeanor, is used twice. All right? Why? What's the point? You know, to be honest, it seems to reflect order of creation. It also seems to be reinforced by the fact that God, very, or the biblical text, talks about the men in the home to be assuming the role of spiritual authority in the home. God holds the men to a higher accountability in the home. They're responsible. If things go south in the home, it's the man's fault. What do men like to do? They like to blame their wives. If there are issues in your home, then it's your fault. Now, by the way, I want to point out, this doesn't mean that since you're the spiritual head of the home that you can't do dishes and clean up. Forget that. I'm all for guys assuming all the responsibilities that they work out with their wives in the home, except for diapers. I don't do diapers, but I don't have to anymore, okay? But you understand that there is a, a theological principle here that I think the biblical text overall backs up is that God has an expectation for men to be the spiritual authority in the home and that therefore in the community, the, man ha the, man, the men have an, a responsibility as spiritual authorities. Just as their wives in partnership with their husbands serve with their husbands but serve under them in that hierarchy, so is the same in the congregation. All right? And so uh, that's... There's a lot more to be said on that, but I'm going to stop there because I want to go on to talk about these other roles. So take a look at verse chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, Trustworthy is the saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be beyond criticism, the husband of one wife, clear-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not violent, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, managing his own household well, keeping his children under control with all respectfulness. But if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's community? He must not be a new believer, or he may become puffed up and fall into the same judgment as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation with those outside so that he will not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. So here we have in verses 1 through 7 a description of the role of a zachin, the spiritual authority. The, uh, the, the uh, word for overseer here this, this is the word overseer, bishop. But the bottom line is, is a guy who oversees, spiritual overseer, okay? This is a position people should aspire to. People should aspire to this. 
The reality is, is that, uh, as I've been trying to point out to a couple people recently, it's a part-time unpaid position, generally, within the community, where you assume the spiritual burden of the lives of people in the community. This is not something to be taken on lightly. And to be honest with you, it's, it's, uh, it's, if it's done right, it is exhausting, both mentally, physically, and spiritually. But it's something that is required. A lot of times I think in American congregations it's taken on kind of like as a job. You know, I get to sit on a board and I get to uh, help make decisions. That is absolutely not the role of an elder, a zachin. The role of a zachin is to care about the spiritual needs of the community, to help people to grow in their relationship with God. These specific details here, I want to just point out a couple. At the very beginning, he says, uh, an overseer, then verse 2, must be beyond criticism. Is anybody beyond criticism? No. Not even me, of course. Right? What's the point? The point is that when you look at somebody, are there clear inconsistencies between the way the person lives, says he lives his life and lives his life? Is there, are there patterns of inconsistencies which make him somebody that basically people can say, no, there's, there's, there's issues here with this fellow. All right? I point that one out because I want to point out that, that folks, there are no perfect spiritual leaders. People that take on a responsibility to care spiritually for a group of people are human beings. <laughs> but they take on a role because they aspire to do something for God that helps to strengthen the community of faith. All right? It's very clear. It speaks of the fact that, that this is a person who's a man. Uh, it talks about the fact that in his home there is order. Now, an elder, a zachan, doesn't necessarily, I think, have to be married, all right? Obviously, I mean, Bob is not married as a zachan, okay? All right, I don't think that it's required. But if there was a, a, a man who's married and his home is a mess, this is a problem. Uh, again, in my experience, uh, through the years, I've known so many rabbis and even schenim uh, and congregations where their kids are, are running amok. You know, there's total disorder in the home. You know, I always like, when I want to see who I would like to raise up for spiritual leadership, I look at the kids. Yeah. I look at the kids. What are the kids like? Now, how do they show respect to others? How are they in terms of, of their commitment to their faith? You know, are the parents raising them toward radical faith? In our context, are they raising them to be committed Jews? You know? These are important considerations. The last point, devout, uh, which I, in my translation here, it would be, uh, um, well, it's just one thing I put here. I put devout. It's a long list. You can ask me for it later. But this individual, to be a zachan, you must be reverent, continually desiring to be separated from sin. You know, I'm 55. I've been, believer, I've been a believer 40 years this July 31st. 40 years. And... Uh, I heard about this theological belief, uh, this idea that perfectionism is possible. If I just wait long enough, pray hard enough, I will reach perfection. I will never sin again. And I've been looking for this for 40 years. Every time I think I get close, my wife points out there's another issue i got to talk to you about, you know, or someone else. I mean, we're all sinful. 
but it is my passionate desire to grow more and more in relationship with God. I see my sin, others help me see my sin, but it is my passionate desire to grow in my relationship with God. That's what it means to be devout. devout. Spiritual leadership, schenim, need to be passionately committed to growing in their relationship with God and that they're easily willing to see their sin and to work on that sin. You, know, it, there, you cannot be static and be in relationship with God, active relationship with God. You can't. You've got to be dynamic because a relationship is dynamic. God desires to grow you and move you beyond where you're at. If you don't have that in the frontal part of your brain, if you're not focused every day on wanting to grow in your relationship with God, you cannot help other people grow in their relationship with God. Does that make sense? Part of this is studying Scripture. Part of this is prayer. I mean, one of the reasons a zachin and, and, and these, these roles within the community require a commitment to being active in a congregational Scripture study and active in our meeting for prayer is because these are key things. You give and you take. You give to others and you take for yourself from Scripture studies. doesn't matter if it's online or if it's in person. Meetings for prayer, times of prayer, whether in the meeting for prayer that we have once a month or just times of prayer with other people, demonstrates both spiritual desire to be with others and impact their lives through offering prayer as well as receiving prayer. A zakhan is a, is a position, it's a noble position that people should aspire to. Men, as it says, men should aspire to. And it's something that you need. Our movement is, is re really struggles with male leadership, and it's because we don't, we don't expect it, and we don't provide it, we don't promote it, we don't train it up. Not like we should. Now, you may not ever, you, you may look at yourself as a man, and you may say, I really don't think I could ever be a zakhan. I don't think I could ever be a spiritual authority in the community. Well, I mean, if you don't aspire to it, I suppose, but I think you should aspire to it. You should start by being a spiritual leader in your home, even if that home is just you, aspire to that position in your home. And if you're married, be that position in your home with your wife. And if you have kids, with your kids too. Take it very actively, or your grandchildren, whatever. You get the point. But, uh, but I think it's really important to recognize that there must be an ongoing effort within every congregation to be training up spiritual leaders. And if you have no interest whatsoever in having any kind of spiritual leadership role, then I would challenge you on that. Because if we strip away the title Zachin, which is a specific role in the biblical text, we should recognize that God calls all of us to be spiritual leaders in a, with a little L in the lives of the people around us. Different people pray for me. They're not just all men and spiritual leaders. There are women that pray for me and that try to make influence in my life for good. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you can't play an active role as a spiritual encourager and leader with a little L. But do you want to do that? And are you devout enough to do that? Okay? Just something to toss out. If you take a look at the next line, take a look at uh, chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 8. It says servant leaders. This is the word diakonos. So this is what the Christians would call a deacon. We call it shamash or shamashim. 
Servant leaders likewise must be dignified, not double-speaking, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must keep hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Also let them first be tested, then let those who are blameless service servant leaders. Women likewise must be dignified, not backbiting, clear-minded, trustworthy in every respect. Let servant leaders be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as servant leaders gain for themselves a good standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Messiah Yeshua. Here we have this third point. Actually, yes, third point. Fourth point. The role of a shamash, the spiritual servant within the congregation. This is a role that's very confusing, very confused for, for many congregations, okay? But it's, it has to do with the fact that individuals who specifically are, are raised up and appointed to, to help others within the congregation with physical needs. Just like we see in the book of Acts when the, the uh, individuals are selected to help people with food, who need food. This is a position, it says, for those, those who serve well obtain for themselves a good standing. It's literally serving others with physical needs and it's one to be respected in the community. A physical servant of others serving others' needs. Now, there's something called a, uh, a test of faithful service. Do you think someone who never lifts a finger to do anything in the congregation for anybody would make a good shamash? No. How do you, how do you figure out who would make a great shamash? You observe to see who's already serving. You see who's already helping. That's one way you know. Someone has maybe their spiritual gifts attached to this, but it may be just that people are, they just gravitate toward it, all right? And then the congregation, based on the criterion, and again, it says here, these can't be just anybody. They have to be solid, spiritually-minded people, all right, who will take on this role. And uh, just because I'm running out of time here, I want to point out, uh, the, the question is asked, can women serve as shamashim? Uh, my answer to this is yes and no. I would say yes, because it's, it's not entirely clear, uh, and it does allow for this. There, You have a statement here in verse 11. It says, women likewise must be dignified, but the Greek word for women there could also be wives. So wives of, 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 a, of a, the wife of a shamash. But I think that here, I think that that statement though also opens it up for women. So I think that this critical role in the community of service is something that is open to anyone. It is not a spiritual authority role. There's no such thing as a board of deacons. No shamash board. They're sitting on a board, they're not doing their job. A shamash is an individual who is specifically seeking to have a task to do to help people in need. Maybe they oversee food baskets for people in the congregation that have uh, needs for food, or they oversee helping people to get to doctor's appointments, or they other things. You know, I mean, it's really just physical needs. And the point of the role is to make sure that the schenim are free to teach, to pray, to lead. All right? Now, I bring all this up because if you look at the bottom of the page on the announcement sheet, it talks about our synagogue leadership structure. I'm going to wrap this up next week uh, because I'm going to Israel, God willing. And here we lay out the biblical pattern for uh, uh, scriptural authority and roles of authority in the congregation, and just roles. Now, we recognize the fact that Yeshua the Messiah is king, including over this community, all right? Nothing we should do should ever bring him shame or dishonor or embarrassment. Underneath uh, Messiah, God has established 
The Shechinim is the spiritual leadership of the local community, as we just talked about. Uh, associated, but in a different position, is the, the servant leadership role of the Shamash. Individuals, and we're going to talk about this a little more next week, assuming responsibilities of serving to meet the physical needs of, of individuals within the community. And then finally, and absolutely not in the biblical text, uh, but important, are other roles, including the synagogue leader role, by the way. A synagogue leader, you know, a rabbi or in a church, a pastor, these are not biblical roles in, as we practice them today. They're functionary. Everybody's so darn busy, it's hard to expect a zakhan to put in 20 or 30 hours a week. All right? Um, so we, there's hiring of people to do certain things. That's where these roles come from. Also, yorim, chairs. I don't think they had sound systems and pianos back then. And so you have, and, and PowerPoints and, and Onegs. They had Onegs. The Shamashim probably ran it. I don't know. But the point is, is Yorim is something that uh, is, is in our modern time. It's not, not biblical next, necessarily, but we'll try to explain next week what it is. This is what I want to end with. For your consideration, God establishes authorities and he has established specific roles within the congregational body. Ask yourself the question, am I intentionally developing God's requirements in my life so that I can be someone able to serve God effectively within this congregation? That's really a question regarding your relationship with God and your personal spiritual growth in that relationship. If your relationship with God isn't that strong, how could you serve in a spiritual role at all? How could you really serve others through the Spirit of God, as we've talked about previously, uh, as a shamish, for instance, if you're really not that excited about your relationship with God? How could you be a zachin? How could you provide spiritual counsel and oversight and teaching if your relationship with God is mediocre? So the core question I'm asking this morning is how are you developing that relationship with God and with the intentionality that you really want God to use you within the community, especially this community. I mean, we need people that will serve God, but we need spiritually developing followers of Messiah Yeshua to fulfill these roles. I'm not just looking for warm bodies. That usually doesn't lead to good results. All right? So just something to, to contemplate and consider, and we'll continue next week and kind of wrap it all up, and then I'll wave goodbye and I'm going to Israel. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you have brought us into relationship with you and you've given us your spirit to help us to live our lives your way. But God, you also have things for you that you want us to do and that within this community there are specific roles and expectations, God. I pray that each one of us would desire to serve you, to be an encouragement to others, to provide spiritual encouragement and help for others. But God, I pray that you would also burden uh, people within this community to desire to serve in official roles of ministry uh, that this community can remain strong and grow stronger, God. That we would be useful for your service and for the building up of your kingdom, starting within this synagogue, but going out from it. So again, we just thank you for all you've done to bring us into a relationship with you and your passionate desire to grow us in that relationship. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.